Alrighty, well, good morning, everybody. It's such a privilege, a pleasure, and an honor to, to be here with you all again. I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and, and turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. And I, I want to ask if you are able to please stand for the reading of the Word of our God. going to begin the reading in verse 10. These are the words of Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, we are your creatures. Father, we we are so dependent upon you every morning. Father, our our lives and, and and all the events are in your hands, in your sovereign hands. God, lead us to trust that which we do not understand. Help us to lean not on our own understanding. Help us to depend wholly upon you. Dear God, I pray for your grace. I pray for the working of your spirit this morning. That the truth of your word might be illuminated to this congregation. That the truth thereof would be known to all of us. And dear God, I pray that you would do wonderful things. I pray that you would strengthen our faith. I pray that you would um, increase and encourage our walk with you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, I pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Recently, I uh, was down in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, there was a, a Christian conference uh, that was going on down there. It was, it was really, really tremendous. There was over 8,000 people in attendance. And it was uh, uh, multiple days. It was a four-day conference. And on the third day, which was Friday, on Friday night they were getting ready to screen a documentary-style uh, movie and it was about 7 o'clock at night, and I'm sitting there, and, and we're getting ready to be shown this film. And all of a sudden, I notice a guy, uh, he walks up onto the platform, and I'm kind of thinking, like, he, he doesn't really look like he belongs up there. And sure enough, as I was leaning to my, my brother, who, who was sitting beside me to, to, to make a comment about this, the guy on the platform starts stamping his feet in an effort to get everyone's attention. And then we hear the words, the fire alarms are not working. We need to leave the building. There has been a bomb threat. Well, needless to say, this is not how we were expecting our evening to go. We make our way out of the building and to get into our car and and to leave the area. The whole place was being evacuated. We heard sirens. 
heard a man shouting on, on a megaphone that people needed to leave. They needed to get away from the building. Frightened, confused attendees who were trying to safely make their way out of the Georgia International Convention Center. And it was eventually discovered that, thankfully, the threat was not genuine. Someone had, for whatever reason, decided to cause uh, panic, a, a false panic to those believers who had gathered. Well, there was about, let's see, there was a, because this was about seven o'clock that night, and we did not hear anything official until seven o'clock the next morning about the fact that this had been a false threat. So there were about 12 hours in which we, we had no idea what was going on. We had no way of knowing uh, whether this really was a threat we needed to be concerned about or if it was false. And so it does, it did give us, a lot of us, an opportunity to seriously consider the fact that, let's say, heaven forbid, there was somebody there who, for whatever their reason was, because of their hatred for Christianity, their hatred for the gospel, if they had desired to cause harm, if they had this desire to take the lives of some of those believers who were gathered, we would not have been the first nor the last Christians killed, martyred for the sake of the Christian faith. Anyone who has studied church history has read countless accounts of the martyrs, those people who bore witness to their Christian faith by giving their very lives. We've all heard that saying of Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And from the days of the apostles to the Protestant Reformation and even to this very day in many, many parts of this world, Christians, people devoted to following Jesus Christ and following his word, have been testifying to the gospel in their deaths. And although this kind of intense, actualized, realized martyrdom may not be something that you and I explicitly experience, persecution does come in many forms. And we can safely ascertain, we look at Jesus' words here, and what we need to recognize is persecution should not necessarily surprise us. We are, of course, going to be looking in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 10, we read the words, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is obviously coming at the end of Jesus' Beatitudes. This is the eighth, this is the final Beatitude, and it sort of serves a transition from the Beatitudes to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you just look at the Beatitudes, if you look at what Jesus is saying there, uh, we, we see that when God sets his grace upon a man, he, it's almost like he breaks them so as to build them up again. We read about being poor in spirit, broken over an awareness of our sin, mourning for the evil that is inside of us, and eventually... We see that this man becomes meek, realizing who he truly is when compared to God. This man, seeing himself for the first time, does not stay 
in this lowly state of full of pity like a dog licking his wounds. For rather, grace has shown a light into this man's very soul. You see, he realized his sin. He was poor in spirit. He was mourning. He was meek. And so he saw who he truly was. But he also saw who God was. And you see, God gives him this hungering, this, this thirsting for righteousness, an intense craving in his soul to follow after God, to follow after his word, to walk in holiness. We realize that his new life begins to demonstrate himself as he is merciful to others, just as his merciful and faithful high priest has shown mercy to him. He's pure in heart, walking in holiness with holy desires, holy wants, holy affections. Now he, full of that grace which he has received, wishes to see that grace spread across the the whole world. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. He seeks to take the the peace of God and, and make it known to others in this world, others in his life. And all of this seems so hopeful. It seems so wonderful, so glorious. It's like we're, we're climbing up the mountain. But what's the last beatitude we read? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, in the spiritual growth of a Christian person, what Jesus teaches us in the Beatitudes is that when a Christian ha- is... Is, is most conformed to the image of Christ, when they are most living out the calling of the Christian life, when they are most being obedient to God's word, it is at this spiritually mature level that they find themselves persecuted. You see, that is the trajectory for the Christian. And so, we have to contend with something. We, we have to think about the fact that, I mean, Jesus in, in the Old Testament, he is called the Siar Shalom. He is called the Prince of Peace. And Jesus, in Colossians, it says that he makes peace by the blood of his cross. And then Jesus here in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the peacemakers. And so, you know, we think about peace, we think about tranquility, we think about ease, we think about serenity. And these are such wonderful things But then we look at a place such as Matthew chapter 10, and what does Jesus say? He says, I come not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. We have to harmonize these things. We have to have a balanced look at all this. We need to look at it all together. Because here's what we need to seriously reconcile with. How does someone come into a peaceful relationship with God? It is grace. It is grace and it is all of God's grace. And so, what we have to recognize is people who do not have that grace. 1 Corinthians says, The word of the cross is foolishness to them who are perishing, to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. And so those who are naturally minded, those who are enslaved to their sin, in many different ways, but what do they do? Paul says in Romans 1, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Like the psalm that was read this morning, they exchange the glory of God to worship created things. And so the naturally minded man, the man enslaved to his sin, rejects the gospel. And therefore, they reject the ministers of the gospel 
And, and when I use that terminology, I don't just mean the preacher. I mean individual Christians who seek to be salt and light in this world, who seek to live out God's truth and, and to express, spread the beautiful message of the gospel. People enslaved to their sin. This sinful world, which the Bible says lies under the power of the evil one. They're not going to accept that. They're not going to accept you. And so the, our Lord, he specifically says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Persecuted for righteousness sake. Though we seek to make peace with all men. Paul, in, in, in one of his letters, he writes, strive to make peace with everyone so far as you are able. You see, it does not always lie in our strength, our power, and our ability to make peace with those whom we may desire to have it. That all lies in the grace of God. We have to trust Him. We have to pray for His power. And so though we seek to be peaceable to all, we seek to make peace, be peacemakers, bring the peace of Christ to individuals. We, we don't always see that. And sometimes it's not peace that we find, but it's a sword. We find hostility. We find that people are against us. We find ourselves persecuted. Now, Jesus says, not just blessed are the persecuted, but he says specifically, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see, I think that there is a connection between this and the hungering and thirsting in verse 6. When someone is actively living righteously, when they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, God will, will satisfy that desire. And so this person, he is seeking to live righteously in the world, but there's this thing about the world, this world is unrighteous, and this world is anti-peace. There's an old saying that peace is that brief period of time when men put their guns down to reload. A glance at the news, or for those people who are living in, in some of these bigger cities in our country, a glance out your window is going to tell you right away there is a lot of anti-peace in this world. There's a lot of hostility. Just something that's recently come across all of our attentions is some of the bombings that are taking place in the Middle East. And you see, when Jesus speaks about wars and, and rumors of wars in the Olivet Discourse, he, he says it as though this were something to be expected. It's something that should not surprise us. Why? Because that's it's just what happens in this world. As one brother quoted from Ecclesiastes this morning, there's nothing new under the sun. And so we look at this world that we live in, and it can be so discouraging. Why? Because it's so hostile. Why? Because everything that we as Christians love, everything that we as Christians stand for, is antagonized. By this world, even the people in our most prominent positions, the House of, Represent of Representatives, the Senate, the Executive Office, the, the judges in the Supreme Court, all of these people, well, and I don't mean all in 100%, obviously I don't know people's hearts, but you look at the vast uh, majority of what's going on in our society, and, and it's horrible. Think about the entertainment industry that has captivated your grandchildren and, and, and even some of your adult children. That's what this world has to offer. And that's why as Christians it's so discouraging 
to see all this going on. We look at you know, the bleak reality that's painted in Romans chapter 1, the suppression of truth and unrighteousness, the being given over to the lusts of the heart. We live in a day and age when these things are not even hidden, but they're just out in the open. People have rejected their Creator, and in their debased minds have been filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Therefore, our society hates God. They hate His Son, and they hate His truth. And that means if you are speaking His truth, they will hate you too. They will hate your children. They will hate your grandchildren. We should all be preparing our hearts, preparing our families for the hostility that is out there. Now, do we want that? No, we wish that we could make peace with those people. We wish that their hearts would be open. They are not... We not, do not necessarily look at them as if they are, they are our enemies, but we have to realize that's how they look at us. Now, you know, we read in the scripture that the, the, the word of, of the gospel, that it's, it, Paul compares it to a perfume, and he says it's a, a fragrance of life to life to some. It's a, it's a pungent stench of death to the dying world. And... We look at the world around us and it seems like it's the latter one that, that is taken over. It seems like everything and everyone is against us. Now, does this mean that God has failed? Now, such a question deserves not even to be answered. King Jesus is upon his throne. Our God is a sovereign God. This world is exactly where he wants it to be. Think about a, a politician right now who is in office, who has control, who everything he stands for is unrighteous. Everything he stands for is against God's law and God's word. And everything that that politician does is, is anti-life, is anti-love, is anti-peace, is anti-truth. Why is he in that office? God's decree. God is ordering the affairs of this world exactly how he wants them to be for his own particular purposes. And so we, we, have to, we have to trust in God. We have to always have hope. Okay? We, we cannot be as those who labor without hope, but we must have hope. And so we, we trust God. We trust that this world is exactly as he wants it to be. And, and, and though we have these, these wonderful promises in Scripture for the future, uh, we read, if we look at some of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, Christ, what he is supposed to do when he comes into this world, we read that he's going to establish justice and peace in all the nations. That the knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the water covers the sea. That the coastlands are going to be waiting for his law. Think about that last one. All the nations of the world waiting, waiting for the law of God because they, they want to be obedient to that law. That's, that is wonderful. That's beautiful. And that's a promise in Scripture. All of these things are, are wonderful. There is so much reason to have hope and, and to trust in what God is doing. But you have to also, all of us see it obviously when we read in our New Testaments that it does seem to be God's will for His church to never be completely without suffering in this life, 
prior to eternity. And he has a purpose in that. So we need to think about it. And we look at our King Jesus, who sits enthroned. We read that beautiful passage in Daniel 7, which describes the authority, which describes the, the kingdom that he's been given. And we look to his words after his resurrection in the Great Commission when Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we seek to fulfill this Great Commission. Remember when he says that, it's not so that we just sit there and be passive and and enjoy his authority. It's all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, because of this authority that I have, says Christ, go. Make disciples of all the nations. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we seek to be obedient because we love Christ. We want to obey his commands. We seek to fulfill the Great Commission. Yet as we do it, we realize that just as it was true when Jesus told his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. It's true for us. It's true for us as we go out into the world. We are sheep in the midst of wolves. And it seems to me, and I don't think anyone in this congregation will dispute, that the wolves are outnumbering the sheep. Now someone may say that, well, that only applies to the apostles. Well, if it does, it's an awfully strange coincidence that the same thing has been true for the past 2,000 years of church history. I mean, I mean, look at some of the, our Christian brothers and sisters who are in the Middle East right now where, where these, these bombings are taking place. And, and in some of these more Muslim countries, Christians being beheaded, being killed. Why? For, for, th- for this. For that they hold dear. I, I remember reading a story or coming across a story that there was a, a, someone in, who got saved over in the Middle East in one of these uh, uh, countries, and he, he desired to follow the Lord in baptism. Well, it's really hot in the desert, and there's not a whole lot of water, so what they did was they, they basically you know, went out in secret, because you can't do these things out in the open. They went out, and they, they sort of dug this, this makeshift a baptistry, and they put a, a tarp in there, and they filled it with water, and they were baptized in this tarp. Well, some of their, the people who hate Christ found out about this, and they killed them. Look at our nice baptismal pool here. I mean, I mean we're, we're so blessed. We're so fortunate in this country. I, I mean, and... So, if, if we baptize someone in there today, they're not going to be worried. They're not going to be thinking about the fact that if someone were to see it, lose their hat. But that's what some of our brothers and sisters are going through right now to this very moment. And so we have to look at this. We have to look at all of the aspects of Scripture. We have to look at the blessings for the future, the promises. We also have to look at the warnings. We have to look at the fact that we are to be peacemakers in this world, and we also have to look at the fact that Christ said, I come not to bring peace, but a sword, and that all men will hate you for my sake. Now, we have to, of course, understand this rightly. We have to have a balanced understanding of these things. And, and 
Really, this text in Matthew chapter 5 has been often dangerously misunderstood and dangerously misapplied. And so we have to, we have to carefully examine these things because we want to be obedient uh, to our Lord, our Savior, and our Teacher. Now, I've already emphasized the fact that Christ does not merely say, blessed are those who are persecuted, but he says, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so to avoid error, what is the difference between you know, just the suffering, the persecution, and suffering persecution specifically for righteousness? Well, to start with the contrast, what is it to suffer without it being... You know, to suffer for an unrighteous reason, to not suffer for righteousness' sake. Well, Peter, in his first epistle, gives us some obvious examples, saying in chapter 2, verse 20, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Again, in chapter 4, verse 15, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. You see, something that should be rather obvious to us, to us all is, if we are suffering, if, if we are finding that people are hostile or antagonistic towards us because of our sin, well, there's nothing to glory in that. There, there, that's, that's not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's just receiving the due penalty for our iniquity. You, you know, far too often, unrighteous men will use the hostility that they encounter to a sort of use it as like evidence that they are doing some great uh, thing. This is especially true when it comes to social and political issues. Someone may be arrested for participating in some kind of, of, of mob activity and, and they will cry persecution. And this will then fan the flames of their movement as they take this sign of hostility or as a, as a sign that they are doing good when in reality all they've experienced is justice for their crime. Someone may, you know, do or, or say something, and, it, and it's like some ungodly thing. And when people criticize them, they take that criticism to mean, well, I must be on the right side of, of history. Uh, you, you know, but as Martin Lloyd-Jones brilliantly pointed out back in the late 1950s, there is all the difference in the world between being persecuted for righteousness' sake and being persecuted merely just for some cause. And so, so I want to ask you a question. Who defines what is righteous? Who defines what is righteous? God does. God defines righteousness. God defines truth. God defines justice. And so if you're suffering, obviously, for something that God calls unrighteous, well, then you're not suffering for righteousness' sake. Uh, when we read the Old Testament, we read about many instances when God would, would actually use the surrounding nations of Israel to judge Israel for her sin. And in that, those time periods, when the Jews were suffering for their iniquity, this was not a, a blessed suffering for righteousness' sake. No, this was judgment. This was judgment for idolatry. This was judgment for sin. And as a matter of fact, there are also times in the Old Testament when God would use a pagan nation to judge another pagan nation. And God says, by this, they will know that I am Yahweh. They will know that I am the Lord. Something to, to think about, but my, my point as it relates to this is, 
not every time we experience hostility in this life does that necessarily mean we're doing something right. We always have to think, if you know, someone is, is opposing me, well, is it because I need to be opposed? And so, what do we do? Well, we have to look back to our Bibles. We have to look back to the Word of God. We have to look back to the person of Jesus Christ and see if we are walking in obedience to Him. So, for instance, you know, we can all think about uh, times you know, in, in history where a certain religious faith, be it Judaism, Islam, or, or whatever it is, were persecuted, suffered for their faith. But this cannot be rightly said to be a, a righteous persecution. Why? Where does righteousness come from? Well, God defines what, what is righteous, not man, and righteousness comes by faith specifically in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so you cannot suffer for righteousness' sake unless you have the righteousness which is imputed to you by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we see how central it is to all of this that we do have that faith in Jesus Christ. That's central to all things. That's central to all aspects of life. And by the way, that is one of the reasons why Christians are persecuted. In the Roman Empire, in the, in the early days of the Christian faith, uh, as you may know, the Roman society had a, a, a pantheon of different gods, different deities. And this God over here, he's, he's the sun God. This God over here, he's the God of the water. This God's the God of the harvest. This God is the God of, of, of romance or, or whatever it was. And, and so they, they were all fine with, with, with different gods and everything. Now the Christians come along, and the Christians believed not in those gods, but they believed in Jesus Christ. And, and, and initially, a Roman uh, citizen is not going to object to that because... You know, it's no different than, than, than Poseidon or, or Ares or these different things, and it would be no big deal. But here's what happened. The Christians not, did not just say, Jesus is a God. The Christians said, Jesus is God. You see, it was that exclusivity of the Christian faith that so angered the pagans. They hated that. They thought that it was disrespectful, they thought that it was cruel, they thought that it was offensive, that it was unloving to say that your God is the right God and their God is not the right God. But, is that not exactly the kind of society we live in today? Someone looks at me as a, as a Christian and they would say, how dare you tell those Orthodox Jews that they're wrong? How dare you tell those Muslims that they are wrong? How dare you tell the Buddhist that he is wrong? It's what my forefathers suffered exactly. And so that is one of the reasons why Christians are persecuted is because of the exclusivity of the Christian message. But the problem is, if we are not preaching that exclusivity, if we are not preaching the centrality of Jesus Christ, in all of life, for all lives, we are not preaching the gospel. Jesus did not say, I am a way, if you want it. I am a truth. I, I am one option, one aspect for life. No. He said, I am the way, definite article. I am the truth, and I am the life. And by the way, no one 
comes to the Father except through me. Let's think about that phrase for a moment. No one comes to the Father. That's, that's what he says. No one comes to the Father. And you see what a bleak and dark reality that paints. But then he says this, except through me. And as one man said, that word accept right there is like a, a window of light in, into a dark chasm. And although it may be offensive to some that we say Christ is the only way, it is also their only hope that we would say Christ is the other way because it's true. Joseph Smith is not going to save anyone. Muhammad is not going to save anyone. Buddha is not going to save anyone. You know who will? The same man who saved me. The God-man who gave his life as a propitiation for my sins and for many people in this room. And that is the message we need to preach. And so, I'm obviously not trying to win any, any popularity points here, but, but hopefully this is, is something that's beneficial to you. And so just... As we are thinking about suffering you know, righteously, suffering unrighteously, just as a practical application for uh, Christians in, in this room, you know, let us not take Jesus' words and abuse them. If you are suffering because of your sin, you know, whatever it may be, don't twist the words of your Lord here and, and use them as evidence that you're behaving rightly. I mean, there have been men who, because of their sin, ruined lives, ruined relationships, ruined families. And they looked at their sorry condition and they cried, woe is me, you know, taking pity on themselves for what they've gotten into. I've known people who literally have believed that a curse had been cast over their life because of the terrible situation that they were in. But it wasn't that someone cast a curse upon them. It was that they were obeying their flesh, they were obeying their sin, and it got them into those situations. And so if, if you're in that position, don't think that you're some kind of victim and that the whole world is out to get you. Realize that you need to repent. Repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then, now you have something we're suffering for. Suffering for my sin is not worth it. If, if, I, if, if, if a man... Uh, commits adultery and he suffers for that, that's not worth suffering for. That, that's, that's, re- that's something that needs repented of. That's something that should bring shame. If, if someone's a thief or if someone's an evildoer, that's not worth suffering for. Yet how many people live their lives so enthused, so enslaved to their sin and, and they suffer for it? All of that is meaningless. But if you live for Jesus Christ, and you have His righteousness, now you can live and die for something that is truly meaningful. And so then, having dealt with the potential misuse of this text, what is it like, what does it look like to suffer for righteousness' sake? Well, verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, just a brief comment on the literary structure of things. I don't mean to get too technical, but this is like, like verse 11 is essentially the transition from the Beatitudes to the rest of the sermon. It's not a ninth Beatitude, as some have thought. What this verse is doing is Jesus, he's beginning to teach how the person 
of whom the Beatitudes is true, the person whom God sets his grace upon, how that person is now going to live in this world, how that person is now going to live in God's kingdom. And I just wanted to point out that if you're the type of person who takes notes, this may be something worth writing down, the very first practical life lesson that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount is a lesson on persecution and suffering and facing persecution. Something we all need to think about. Now, getting back to the idea, what does it mean to suffer for righteousness' sake? We get two clues from verse 11. Jesus says, quote, When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Look at that last part again in your Bibles. Falsely and on my account. You see, Jesus specifically emphasizes that the evil things people are saying about you are not true. And I know we've been over this already, but if, if you are, someone accuses you of being an adulterer, and you actually have committed adultery, well, you're, that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's that people, because they hate you, because they hate your God, falsely slander and call you an adulterer, even though you've remained faithful with your spouse. And before I expand that out more, Jesus also specifically says, on my account. This is why I I point out a a Jew cannot truly suffer for righteousness' sake because he has denied the Son of God by his profession of Orthodox Judaism. Therefore, he does not have righteousness. No, the people Jesus is speaking about are being persecuted for their allegiance to Christ. Not some vain cause or scheme of man, but for the sake of the true gospel. Jesus says this at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and in doing so, he just lays it out for all of his followers. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon for Christians. So everyone needs to be aware that if they follow Jesus Christ, it means to suffer. Jesus elsewhere says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I love the comment the Puritan Thomas Watson makes. Though Christ died to take away the curse from us, yet not to take away the cross from us. It is a simple, plain teaching of the Bible that all followers of Jesus Christ will endure hardship in this life, will endure suffering, will endure persecution. As Paul writes to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And and when Jesus talks about people lying about you, people falsely slandering you, I want you to know this has historically always been what happens. The early church in the days of of the Roman Empire, that early period. You know what the pagans called the Christians? They called them incestuous and cannibals. Why Why would they call them those things? Well, because this... Christians, they would hold what were called love feasts with one another. And to the pagan world, the pagan world, the non-believing world, does not really know what love is. You see, we only have a foundation for knowing what love is uh, in God. And and there are many different kinds of love, all kinds of love. The love between a a husband and, and a wife, the true meaning of that is found in God. 
The love between a brother and a sister is found in God. The love between a, a friend and a friend is found in God. And, and so Christians, they, they would hold what were called love feasts, and the pagan world did not understand it. They thought it was some kind of sexual thing, an orgy or whatever it was. Well, Christians also have this practice that we get from the apostles where they would refer to each other as brother and sister. And so to, to the pagan, non-believing world, they, they can't even understand that kind of love and, and holy unity that exists between the church. And so they distorted it, perverted it, and started accusing the Christians of being incestuous. Now they would also accuse the Christians of being uh, cannibals because they talked about eating the body and drinking the blood of, of their God. Now obviously we understand the proper understanding of the Lord's Supper, but the pagan world didn't believe that. And so there you have the early Christians being accused of of incestuous perverts and cannibals. And this has always been the case. Even some of the early uh, Baptists in the 17th century were accused of, uh, of being immodest, saying that they were baptizing you know, nake, uh, naked women and, and these different things. And of course, there was never any, any, any proof of that. That was just an accusation. But my point is, it has historically been the case that Christians have been slandered and, and lied about and, and called things that they truly were not. We should not be surprised when they do the same to us. When they accuse you of being sexually immoral, even though you, you're not. When they accuse you of this, when they accuse you of that, it should not surprise you. Look at Jesus' words. Why would God do this? Why would God allow us to meet such suffering? Why would God allow us to meet such persecution? Well, is it not the case that a blacksmith forges his metal by taking tongs and, and lowering the piece into a furnace, and then just as that piece is, is red hot and glowing, he takes it, sets it on his anvil, and begins to strike it with the hammer? Well, it would seem to me that God forges his Christians by lowering them with the tongs of providence into the furnace of affliction and striking them with the hammer of persecution. You see, our God is a sovereign God. Our God is a wise God. No one has given him counsel. No one ever gave God any advice. No one ever gave him any hints. No one ever gave God any, any pointers on, on, on setting up this world and ordering the world as he chooses to do. No. No, he is God. And he is from everlasting to everlasting. And he, but he also, he does no thing without a purpose. God does no thing without a purpose. And so what we have to recognize is that if it should be the will of our God who works all things for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, that if, if it is that God's will that we should suffer, that we should meet persecution in this life, recognize that it is not without a purpose. God has a reason for that. And I, what I believe is that it is to strengthen us. I believe it's to strengthen us. John Calvin has written, It is the ordinary lot of Christians to be hated by the majority of men. For the flesh cannot endure the doctrine of the gospel. None can endure to have their vices reproved. But no commentator is greater than Jesus himself. So I'm going to read to you some of his words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. Jesus says, Behold, 
I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? What does Jesus promise his disciples? What does he promise them? Being flogged, being dragged before governors, being dragged before kings, those who are in authority, brother delivering brother over to death, children putting their parents to death, and to really sum things up, Jesus says, Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated. By who? By all. Why? For my name's sake. So here's the thing. Even in that passage, Jesus' intention is not to discourage us. But rather, it is to strengthen us. It is to encourage us. You see, we have many warnings here. And, and, and oftentimes, you know, people who are, are preaching on, on persecution and, and, and these types of things want to just hammer down the negativity of it. And, and look, I get it. That, that preaches a good sermon. It gets people's emotions stirred up. But, but what, what is the intention that the Holy Spirit has for the church when he inspires these words in our Bibles? You see, I, we have many warnings in there, but we have promises as well. We have promises as well. We are promised that when we are delivered over to stand trial for our faith, that we do not need to be anxious how we are to speak or what we are to say. For Jesus says, what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. You see, we are promised that when this persecution comes, not that we are destitute and left all alone, and it's all black and it's dark and it's gray and it's dreary. We are promised the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in that hour. To aid us, to guide us, to love us, to help us persevere through these trials. And we are told that should we be persecuted, we are doing nothing more than following the footsteps of our Savior. You see, I want us all to remember this. The Bible is never trying to discourage you if you are a Christian. The Bible, it's going to confront your sin. It will confront your iniquity. It may even lead you to tears and to weeping. 
But the Bible, for a Christian, it will never discourage you. When the Bible tells us those things that are particularly hard for us to hear, the end that God has in mind is always that we would be built up, that we would be strengthened, and that we would be encouraged. God's will for his saints is that they would have hope. You know, it's so strange to me that most of the time when people are talking about the return of our Lord and and the end times and things like that, that so much of that discussion is built with and is fueled upon scaring people and shocking people and making us feel all all bad inside. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when he talks about the return of the Lord, his purpose is not to scare us and get us all riled up, but he says, so that we may not grieve as others who have no hope. You see, hope, That is what we are to have. Hope. Hope is the calling card of the Christian. And so when we look at Jesus' words about being persecuted for righteousness' sake, we have to seriously consider the fact that he not only says this, but he also says, blessed. Blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So how... So how does that become a blessing? Verse 12, Jesus Christ says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad. You're familiar with the King James running, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. In the original language, that, that, that word there, it, it refers to like jumping with joy. Such exuberation, such such happiness that you cannot even contain it. Rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, what an odd thing. What a strange thing to think about uh, responding to persecution with with jumping for joy and, and, and gladness, but Something that we all need to recognize. You know, as we discuss being persecuted for righteousness' sake, nobody experienced that more than Jesus himself. Think about it. Every accusation of sin. Jesus was accused of being a drunkard. Jesus was accused of being a glutton. He was neither of those things. He's sinless. Without perfection. Or, or no, with perfection. Without uh, precatation. Without any fault. Jesus lives a completely righteous life. And he was always about the business of his father. You know, Jesus never wasted one moment of his life. Many of us can think about, you know, when we missed opportunities or when we wasted our time. Jesus never did that. He was always about doing the business of his father. And he did it perfectly, excellent. Never did he ever engage in some work which is not going to be profitable for the kingdom of God. Therefore, every, each and everything he was persecuted for, he suffered for as suffering for righteousness' sake. And, and great was his suffering. We think about him being betrayed by one who was close to him. We think about the, the, the agonies of, of, of going to the cross. And, and not even just the, the physical flogging and, and the, the nails, but, but being 
the sin bearer for a people suffering under the wrath of his beloved father. We, we think about the suffering of Christ, and it was great. It was great. And so we have to think about this. If Jesus did all things perfectly, then obviously the way that he responded to that suffering was perfect. So how did Jesus, who did all things perfectly, perfectly respond to persecution? Well, Jesus, it's interesting, he's spoken in verse 11 about being reviled and slandered. And so listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 23, when he was reviled, speaking of Christ, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, that is the key right there. If we would just look to our Heavenly Father, if we would just look to Him, if we would look to Heaven, we would find it easy to rejoice and be glad. Now I realize that that sounds difficult right now, that sounds hard right now, but we are not necessarily promised to always have that. What we are promised is that when persecution comes, in the hour of trial, we will be supplied with the grace needed to have that hope and to have that joy. Therefore, it is incumbent upon us to be continually praying, trusting that, uh, God that when persecution comes, he would supply us with the grace sufficient to endure. Jesus promises, great will our reward in heaven be. That which we give for Christ in this life now will be returned to us threefold in the life to come. Now, I don't know all of what that is going to entail, but I know that whatever it will be will be glorious. There is a reason in Acts chapter 5 that the disciples rejoiced, quote, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Counted worthy to suffer. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was martyred, before he breathed his last, he saw a vision of his Savior awaiting him in glory. You see, that is the hope that we as Christians labor with. And, and you know, from, from the blood of Abel to Zechariah, Jesus says, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, from the blood of Abel to Zechariah, to to John the Baptist, to Christ, to the apostles, in many martyrs since, the way of the prophet has been the way of the cross. And what's so upsetting, it's, it's that so much of our modern Christianity is so far removed from anything of this sort. Too many pastors, too many Churches want to paint the Christian life as though it were this quaint, easy thing. But that is not at all how Jesus painted it. Jesus describes a life of taking up our cross daily, a life of self-denial, a life of suffering, a life of persecution. Don't get me wrong. There is a real, there is a genuine, actual sense in which the Christian life is the easiest of all lives. Why? Because we don't live in our own strength. Because we live it with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We live it with the hope that comes from the love of God. And But the problem is, is those preachers who like to talk about your best life now, that's not usually what they're talking about. They're talking about carnal things. 
They're talking about money. They're talking about uh, nice vehicles, a nice home. But did we not read that scripture in, in Sunday school this morning? Why would you want to lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth? Where moth and, and rust destroy, where, where thieves break and, and steal? But no. Store for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then Jesus gives that warning. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice, if someone's treasure is not in heaven, where is it? It's down here. So if their heart is not in, in heaven, where is it? It's in the things of this world. And the things of this world are going to perish, and so too will they. Serious thing. Now, I, you know, I'm, not the, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, but I, it would seem to me that unless there is a massive revival, a massive work of the Spirit of God, which God has the power to do, God, God, he could make Tiffin, Ohio, a, a, a shining city set upon a hill. He could do that. He could do that. Always trust him to do that. Never, never think that God will not do great things like that. But we should never be so presumptuous and so foolish as to think that he will not allow us to find suffering, to find persecution. And when that comes, if it comes, it is going to divide the, the wheat and the tares. We will find out where people's hearts truly are in, the, in that hour. Because if you're Christian, if your Christianity is built upon making you happy, is built upon satisfying and fulfilling your desires, your heart's not in heaven. You're in love with yourself. And we are not called to be lovers of self, we're called to be lovers of God. Now, how do we handle this this persecution, what, what, is a, what is something that can help us? What is something that can give us hope? Well, well something that I think is very, very practical is, is to look at how Christians of, of, of the past have, have dealt with the persecution they endured. At the beginning of the sermon, I, I told the story of, of the bomb threat that had been issued at, at, at that conference. Well, Eventually, people started posting videos online in the lobby of one of the nearby hotels where some of the speakers and many of the attendees were gathered. In the lobby of that hotel, during this scared, troubled, confused hour where you didn't know what was going on, you know what those believers were doing? Singing hymns. Singing, great is thy faithfulness. You see, that is, is, is the hope that... that we can truly have. And, and thinking about these things has such a strong way of encouraging us. The earliest written account of a Christian martyr since the New Testament is of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp. And who is Polycarp? Polycarp died sometime in the middle of the second century between around 150, 160 AD. Uh, people will, will debate exactly when. But we know that he died at the age of 86 years old. He's 86 years old. Today, we currently only possess one of his written letters. It's a letter he wrote to the church in, in Philippi. And, it's, and it's, it's a really, really beautiful. If you can find it online, I would encourage your reading of it. But at any rate, another document that we have from this era is what's called the martyrdom, Polycarp. And what that is, that is a written account of his execution. With the, and there's this detail. 
that as he entered into the stadium, he hears a voice from heaven that says, Be strong and play the man. And you may have heard this, that that phrase, play the man, uh, would be quoted over 1,300 years later when in England, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were going to be burned at the stake under Queen Bloody Mary. And Latimer says, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. Now, is that the kind of statement that you would be making as someone was strapping you to a stake to burn you? I, I pray that we would have that courage. I pray we would have that confidence. Well, about the martyrdom of Polycarp, I, I just want to read to you a few sections of this. And this is, he's facing execution. I, I want you to picture this scene as you listen to these words. And, and I hope that this would be encouraging to you. Then the proconsul urging him and saying, Swear, and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since thou art vainly urgent that, as thou sayest, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, and pretendest not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian, and if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day, and thou shalt hear them. Skipping some, the proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast thee, except thou repent. But he answered, Call them then. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. Again, the proconsul said to him, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire. Seeing thou despisest the wild beasts, if thou wilt not repent. But Polycarp said, Thou threatenest me with fire which burneth for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring forth what thou wilt. The final piece I want to read. Immediately then, they surrounded him with those substances which had been prepared for the funeral pile. But when they were about to fix him with the nails, he said, Leave me as I am, for he that giveth me strength to endure the fire will also enable me, without your securing me by nails, to remain without moving in the pile. I don't know about you, but that is some confidence that I pray by God's grace I would have. If I were in that situation, this would go on to be one of the most cherished stories in the ancient church. And many other Christians have found themselves great encouragement in reading these words and and as can we. But what was his hope? What was his encouragement? It wasn't the things of this world, I'll tell you that. It was his father in heaven. That was what he clinged to. That was what he held on to. Now. Are you and I going to be fed to wild beasts 
Are you and I going to be nailed to a cross? Are you and I going to be strapped to a stake and, and, and burnt on a funeral pile? That's for the Lord to decide. We should not, however, though, be expected when persecution comes in different forms. It may come economically. It may shut your bank account down. They'll slander you. They'll utter all kinds of things against you falsely on Jesus' account. How do we respond then? By being faithful to the very end. We rejoice. We be exceedingly glad. And, and that opportunity, that little time, when we are before the governors, before the kings, before the magistrates, you know what Jesus promises us? That the spirit of our Father will direct us as to what we are to speak in that hour. And so, the one who works all things for our good, let us trust him. Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, Father, it's a heavy subject. Father, it's a weighty subject that we have considered this morning. I just pray that this, these words would have an impact on, on us all. I pray that we would all be conformed to the image of your Son. I, I pray that we would continue to rely strongly on the power of your Holy Spirit. Make us bold. Make us zealous for your truth. And help us to endure the trials that may come. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you.